Have you ever wondered what it would take to become big Hollywood stars like Johnny Depp? Well, today's guest is here to speak about exactly that and you are in for a treat. Hi, my name is Vindya V. This is Art of the Extraordinary, the podcast for those of you who's ready to play a much bigger game and leave an extraordinary legacy behind. I'm glad you're here and it's time to make your quantum leap. Well, today I have as my guest Eric Morris, one of the most recognized acting instructors in the world. Eric's career spans over 60 years with a series of eight books on the Eric Morris acting system that is used across the globe. As an actor, Morris has an accomplished portfolio of credits from stage, network television and major motion film. And as a mentor, he has launched several Hollywood careers, including Johnny Depp, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Jack Nicholson. So without taking any more time, here is Eric. Okay, let me start with the fact that I'm an actor, and I started pursuing acting in the late 50s. Well, I started studying acting in 1950, and I started my professional career in 1957. But I graduated from Northwestern University, theater major, and I acted for many, many years. And then, as a result of a fluke, my teacher got a leading role in a film in Rome, uh, Cleopatra, with Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton, and he left me hanging in the middle of the road. So (laughs) one of his students, who I worked with in his class, his name was Martin Landau, one of his students called me up one day and asked me if I had found a teacher yet, and I said no. She said, well, why don't you start teaching a class? I learned as much from you as I did from Marty. I don't know if that was true or not, but that's what she said. And I said, no, no, and no, no, no. I'm an actor. I'm not a teacher. She said, well, you don't have a teacher. Think about this. While you're teaching, you're promoting your own growth. So that bang, that was a, you know, the bell went off in my head. And I said, okay. So I started teaching and that was 1960. And I've been teaching acting ever since. So that's about 60 years almost. And I've been teaching my own system based on Stanislavski, the method approach, his system. But I've gone actually light years beyond the original premise of the method or the system of Lee Strasberg and Stanislavski and created my own approach based on the system, his system. And I've been teaching actors for all of that time, some of them very famous and some of them not so famous. But I've been creating my own approach to acting, which is a very, it's a very authentic, organic approach because it deals with the fact that there's no separation between living and acting. Being an actor and being an acting teacher for almost 60 years, 59 years actually, I've written nine books on my process, the latest one being the one I mentioned, A Second Chance at Life. But the other books are all in acting, about acting, about the process, about the techniques. And they've been in print since 1977, some of them. Of course, as later, some have been in print since the 90s. And some have been in print since the 2000s. But the first book was published in the bookstalls in 1977. 
You have had an amazing career and, uh, of course, spanning across six decades. And you are good at brushing over some of the things that you have done as well. So the superstars that you have actually coached who are actors, by the way, folks, namely by Johnny Depp, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Jack Nicholson. So those are pretty big names. And I'm sure there's many others that... um, I have a very long list of people (laughs) who are well-known in the industry. I worked with Harry Dean Stanton, Terry Garr. I worked with Sue Line, the original Lolita, Aaron Eckhart. Oh, there must be 30 or 40 or 50 people I've worked with over the years who are doing very well in the business and in the industry and theater and films and television. And I'm very, very, very proud of that. Actually, I have about 75 people who teach my work exclusively all over the world. The Eric Morris system being taught all over the world in, in India, Dubai, all over in, in Paris. And uh, I have a big Australia? following in, Arg- in Australia, big following there, Argentina, Germany, all over the place. And I don't want to leave anybody out. Vienna, all over the place. I have people who are teaching my work exclusively. Many of them studied with me directly. Some of them teach my work as a result of becoming scholarly with all my books. But many of them are actually people who have been in my classes and some of them for years, you know. So I'm very proud of that. I Disseminating the work is my life's work. And that's what makes me happy, you know. I never wrote a book with the idea that I was going to make any money on it. And, you know, it came true. I don't make any money on my books directly, actually, but I make enough to reprint them when they go out of stock. But actually, I never did anything with money being the goal. You know, I make a good living and I support myself. My wife works, does this work, and I have a few toys. I'm not into material things. I don't have a lot of material thing. I have a nice house. I have a nice car. But money was never the goal of my life. It was never the driving force. I never thought that I would ever make a living as a teacher. I never thought that. And I taught for, oh, I'd say a few years. When I was in the red, my first wife, I was married before, said to me after about a year and a half of paying rental on the theater to teach acting, she said, when do you think this is going to be a profitable profession? (laughs) Oh, and that, that was about a, a well, well into a year when I was supporting myself, renting space and paying for the space out of my pocket because I didn't have enough people to pay the rent. But over that first year, that over getting over the hump, I started to be able to make enough money to rent a place and maybe a little more. But that was never in my mind that that was really the goal of life. To this time in time, it's not my goal. So... I'm just very happy with what I do. And I said to my psychiatrist, my 95-year-old psychiatrist, when I first started working with him, and I'll say this, and this is not an ego thing because it comes out of a great deal of gratitude and gratefulness on my part. I told him, I said, I get more love from more people on this planet than any one person deserves in a single lifetime. And that's the truth. That is really the truth. And I'm so grateful for that. When you first started teaching, obviously you were saying that you kind of fell into it, right? You didn't know what it was going to be like, but now you have ended up creating this system, which is pretty amazing. That's been used across the globe. But when you first started, before you started 
coaching people like Johnny Depp or, or any of these big stars, could you tell by looking at actors or by the way that they're being whether they're going to be big or not? Uh, that's a very interesting question. I recognize talent and I appreciate it. And yes, I can recognize that some actors I've worked with almost at the beginning, I could really recognize that they were very special. They had a special gift. And because of the nature of the industry and the nature of the business, it was almost impossible to predict stardom, to predict a person making it big like Jack Nicholson or Johnny Depp. Uh, I coached Arnold in his first actual, first dramatic film, Stay Hungry. I worked with him for nine weeks on that project, and he won the Golden Globe Award that year for the most promising newcomer. We worked nine weeks, three, four, five times a week on that film. So I had the feeling that Arnold was going to be a big star because he was so motivated. He was Mr. Olympia five times. Who wins that particular contest five times? Somebody who is dedicated, committed, and I felt that his energy and his commitment would certainly pay off in terms of making it as an actor. I, did, of course, didn't know how big he was going to be, but I thought he was going to make it. Jack was a very different story. Jack and I were in the same class with Marty Landau. I never really wanted to claim Jack as a student, even though he studied with me for two or three years after I started teaching. We were more or less contemporaries, and we were friends, and we spent time together in the early years, and we were in Marty's class together for about two, two and a half years before Marty left to go do Cleopatra. But I always thought Jack was very special. But there was a time when he wasn't working. You know, he did a lot of Roger Corman films, maybe 17 films. But he w went through a kind of a depression period. He was going through a divorce. He was writing screenplays for a producer at Columbia. And he wasn't working as an actor, you know. And he was in class one night. And he came down. He stood next to my chair. He was very depressed. You know, I love Jack. If Jack had never been an actor or never been a movie star, I would still love him the same way that I love him because that's the person, you know. So he stood at my chair and he said, hey, Eric, what are we doing? What is this all for? He was very depressed. And I walked outside when I put my arm around him. We walked outside to the theater and I said, Jack, how long have you been in the business? He said, same amount of time, about 17 years, same amount of time you have, Eric. I said, you know, Jack, you're never going to be happy unless you do it as an actor. And you got to hang in there because it's going to happen for you. It's going to happen for you. I know it. I feel it. 11 months later, he got Easy Rider. And he got Easy Rider because the guy who was playing the part, Rip Torn, got into some kind of an argument with the director, Dennis Hopper, and uh, walked away. And they cast Jack the night before he shot his first scene. And they had to do that right away or they were going to lose the location. The rest is history. Jack is a brilliant, one of the most brilliant actors in our business. And I always knew he had the talent he had. And I always felt that he was going to work and be successful. How successful? You never know in this business because it's the strangest field in the world. You know, I was 24 hours prior to doing a lead in a film. This goes back years and years. It could have been a breakthrough role for me. 24 hours before I was to report 
to the set, the money fell out. Picture was canceled because there was no money. So, right. I mean, you know, who knows what things like that happen all the time to actors. I was on a series, the Phil Silver Show, the new Phil Silver Show, and the show got moved out of one venue into another and then it was canceled. So, I mean, you know, here was my big break. I had a running part in a series, 1964, the new Phil Silver Show. His other show, uh, You'll Never Get Rich, Sergeant Bilko, was a big hit. And when he came to California... They moved it out of the army into a factory, but it didn't go. It just didn't go in that particular scenario. So here I was thinking that uh, I'm going to be in this series for five years. You know, if you do a series for five years, the residuals, you ne probably never have to work again as long as you live. But just being in the series, making it as an actor was very important. But <laughs> we did three or four or five segments before they moved it out of that venue, and I was out of a job. So... The point that I'm making is being an actor is a precarious thing. You're in a precarious business. You're in a precarious position. And there's never any guarantees, never any guarantees that you're going to make a living. You can be very successful and go on the skids and not work for years. You know, a very good friend of mine who is now gone Scott Wilson, I love Scott, had a career later in his life. He did about 25, 30 movies. We were having lunch one day, and he was sitting, he said, you know, Eric, I haven't worked in four years. This was way back when, and after he had done about 10 or 15 movies. And he said, I don't know. I go on auditions. I'm not right for this. I have two this, this. I'm, I'm too old for this. I'm too young for that. I'm too tall for this. And he hadn't worked for four years. And it isn't because he wasn't talented or anything like that. But later in his life, he did The Walking Dead. And as a result of that, he bought a house for the first time in his life. I was celebrating that with him. And he just passed recently. And I feel very, 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 very sad about that. on this a little bit which is about it's not all about the skills yes there is a bit of you know luck involved in what situations that you get into but Absolutely. other than the skill set can you say like what are other elements that a person in this industry has to have in place whether they are skill related or even mindset or whatever else that is what other things need to be in place that would actually put them on a better path to success Okay, talent without discipline is worthless because it's like a loose cannon. It goes off in every different area. An actor, in order to make it as an artist, as a craftsperson, as a fine actor, and as a commercial success, has to have the discipline and the commitment. First, the commitment for training. It's a journey. The training is absolutely mandatory. You have to be trained. You have to know what you're doing. You have to know how to do it. And you have to know that you know what to do and that you know how to do it. Once you are in that position, you're ready to produce, uh, act in front of the camera or on the stage or television, whatever. Discipline, commitment, and the ability to hang in there when things don't look promising, to have the courage and the commitment and the discipline to be there and pursue it and to stay on the journey, to stay on the journey, not to give up, 
even though at times, like I said about Scott, he hadn't worked for four years. He didn't quit. He kept putting one foot in front of the other and going forward. So you have to have those ingredients to actually, I believe, survive, survive and be successful as an actor and successful in the business. You have to have discipline, commitment, training, and love. You have to love. You have to love it. You have to fall in love with it. And if you're not in love with it, then it becomes a business. It's a business. I've done a lot of acting in the time. So I've been on movie sets where you see actors sipping coffee, reading the trade papers, hitting their marks, saying a few lines and going back to uh, smoking cigarettes and drinking coffee. Say your jokes, grab your money and go home. You know, that's their attitude. That's what they think is being a professional. So it's really interesting that those actors are business people. They're in the business of acting. They're not artists. They've chosen this approach, this profession, in hopes that they would make money and be famous and all of that. But that's not the kind of actor that I relate to. That's not the kind of actor that I teach. That's not the kind of work that I've developed. The people I've worked with are fine artists. They're committed. They stay on the journey. The journey is the reward. That's an old Taoist saying. The journey is the reward. Well, that's the journey. It never ends. It ends when we end. I'm in training, you know. I say to my people, I had a class this morning, this morning afternoon. I'm still in training. I'm in therapy. I work on my work every day. I'm in training. I'm 87 years old and I'm still in training. When does the training stop? When I'm done. When I'm, why pass on? That's, the, that's when the training ends. So, I mean, it's dedication, it's discipline, it's love, it's commitment, and it's the ability to ride with the punches. If you're knocked down, you get up. You don't take it personally, even though it's personal. It hurts. You're rejected and it hurts. But you try not to take it personally. You knock you down. You get up and you go forward. That's the only way you can make it in this business in the world, you know? I mean, I can give you a list of my disappointments as an actor. It would probably fill three or four or five pages, but it never stopped me, never stopped me. The only reason that I stopped acting and was a decision really is because I got so involved in the process I created and working with people that seemed so much more important. It seemed so much more selfless, so much more objective, so much more out of myself. And so I got more involved in that. And pretty soon I started to refuse to go on auditions. I'm really busy right now. I'm doing a project with three or four actors. I don't have the time to go on that. And pretty soon my agents would get discouraged with me and they would dump me. Instead of I dump them, they would dump me because I wouldn't go out on auditions. Not because I didn't want to act. It's because something replaced it for me. Something became more important. My eyes all of a sudden turned outward instead of inward. Sometimes it makes me really sad when I see artists, whether they are actors, musicians or singers, whoever they are, when it comes to social media and TV and journalism or whatever is happening around the world, you know, they make a tiny, small move as a human being and people just take them into shreds. But what a lot of people don't realize is that they have put in tens and thousands of hours of work to get there. 
they have done extraordinary to even get to that state. And the moment that they make a tiny different move that some bunch of people don't understand, we just take them to shreds and it just makes me really sad. Yeah, that's terrible. You know, when you figure the training process, the years of training, I have people who've been working with me for 10 years, older, more, 15 years. They go out and they work and they do television, they do movies, they work on the stage, but they stay in the work, in the class, doing the work because that's the evolution. The journey is the reward and the reward comes with being more and more capable, more and more able to fulfill dramatic material on an authentic, organic, experiential level. So, you know, looking from the outside in, People don't realize the commitment it takes, the decades, the decades, the decades. I started writing with the help of Joan Hotchkiss, my first book, No Acting, Please, was my first book. We started writing it in 1972. It got published in 77. Five years later, got published. And so from 1977 to 2019 this my latest book was published in 2019 is like i don't know how many years that is but it's a tremendous number of decades all of those years that i was gathering and working and adding experimenting exploring adding techniques to my work decades and decades and decades and looking from the outside in people don't realize that people who are accomplished in all fields People who are incredibly accomplished at what they do, uh, Bill Gates, all of these people that have moved the world, Steve Jobs, people who accomplish these things. Looking from the outside in, most people don't realize what it takes, the pound of flesh you give, and what it costs you to accomplish what you set out to do. They don't know, and maybe they shouldn't. Maybe they shouldn't. But the fact of the matter is when you look at the journey It's an incredible journey, and it's filled with potholes in the road, you know, and detours and obstacles that you have to climb over or go around. But you do it. You do it because you have to do it. And that's what makes a person to be able to contribute to the world. You know, I have two things that I live by. I don't know what you would call them. One of them is stay hungry, keep reaching, and never get self-impressed. Those are my mantras. I don't violate them. I always keep reaching and I stay hungry for more. More of what? More consciousness, more knowledge, more experiences, more help, all of the above. And I don't have time to, in theory or practice to be self-impressed. It's a waste of time because the minute a person starts being self-impressed, they stop growing, they stop moving forward, and they hit a wall. And so I live by those two credos, and I've had those all my life. To have had the success that you have had, not just in acting, but acting as a teacher to actors and have coached some of these big stars as well, if you can name a superpower, a unique skill that you have that has made you become the success that you are today, what would you say that is? I'm hungry. I'm very hungry. I believe that our purpose on the planet from birth to death is the development of consciousness 
to develop your consciousness to the highest possible level. If everybody on the planet would actually achieve consciousness on that level, there wouldn't be any racism, there wouldn't be any wars, there wouldn't be any hate, there wouldn't be any ugliness on the planet. So I really believe that, you know, a lot of people climb the ladder, rung to rung to rung to the top, hoping to achieve the success at the top of the ladder. I think that at times I was on that climb, but that climb was never for success. It was always, I was hungry. I was very hungry to learn, to grow. I would say that I think my most creative talent is that I'm very innovative. I have ideas, concepts, theories that I put into practice. I pragmatize a thought. I pragmatize an exercise so that it works for people. It moves them forward in a certain area. Well, I believe I'm talented. I accept that. I embrace my talent. But I really believe that I'm hungry. And that hunger has led to a kind of innovative ability to create ideas and systems and exercises and approaches that had not heretofore existed. They are uniquely mine, you know, in terms of the elements of my system. Most of it is uniquely mine and has come from ideas and working with an actor in this, try this, take this adjustment, attempt to talk to this person in an imaginary framework. And by doing these things, I've discovered and innovated techniques and approaches that heretofore have never existed. Now, I'm going to say something that I'm a little reluctant to say it because it sounds a little bit egocentric. The only reason I can really say this is because it's true. My system, the Eric Morris acting system, is actually the first new complete system in the last hundred years. Stanislavski being the bulwark, the foundation of what I built my work on. Without Stanislavski and without Lee Strasberg, there would be no Eric Morris. I wouldn't exist in terms of the way I have. So I credit the founders, the founding fathers of my work. But I've taken this process so far from the original precepts that I think it has created a system that is probably more complete and probably a complete system a newer complete system in the last hundred years since Stanislavski. That doesn't mean I'm in competition with any other acting teacher. I'm just saying that I believe that this is the evolution of 60 years. Well, it's more than that. It's over 70 years because I was an actor for 12 years before I started teaching. So 60, 72 years of work. And this is the culmination of that time and those decades of work. So I really believe that that is the contribution that the system makes. Well, Eric, something that you have said before is that, and something that you say all the time is that to learn how not to act but become professional experiences. What does that mean? Okay, I will tell you where that statement originated. A hundred years ago, Stanislavski said, the actor must experience what the character in the material is experiencing. That's all he said. And for a hundred years, it went lost. Didn't go lost on me, but it went lost in the business, in the industry, in the teaching of the training of actors. You see, I think 
the word actor is a label. What I do is I train people to become professional experiencers. What do you do? What is your profession? Well, I'm a professional experiencer, actor. So that's a label. I don't want to replace the word actor, but what I am is a professional experiencer, and I train people how to become professional experiencers. The only difference between what the character in a piece of material is experiencing and the actors getting to experience that exact reality is the only difference is the actor has to use his own life experiences to stimulate that parallel experience. When you read a play or a screenplay, the author tells you why the character is experiencing what he's experiencing. Well, those realities may be alien to the actor playing the role or approaching the character. So the actor has to find a parallel in his or her life that will stimulate that exact organic internal experience. So you become a professional experiencer by using your own life sources, your own life experiences, your own life choices, your own life relationships, your own life prejudices, etc. and so forth. Got mm-hmm. it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm just thinking that this even relates directly even when it comes to business because in business, like whatever the products, the services that you create, if you cannot take the perspective and be in the same shoes as the person who's actually using the product, it's not going to come out very authentic. There's going to be parts and pieces missing. Definitely. I think that teaching actors or dealing with people on a psychological level is a collaboration It's a 50-50 collaboration. The person that is learning and being trained is collaborating with the trainer. And it becomes a homogeneous relationship. It becomes two people becoming one in terms of the collaboration of the creative process. So Mm. that's what it has to be. It has to be a two-way street and a collaboration. No one person does it for the other. It's a collaboration. Well, Eric, I wanted to ask you, what is your experience with working with other industries who are not actors? I know that you mainly work with actors. The reason I'm asking this question is because I know a lot of professional speakers who's coming from an acting background or who has gone to study acting. So I wanted to know what your experience is in working with other professions or are there any other professions that you think if they knew some or more parts of your system that would come in handy? I had famous lawyers study with me for two and three years at a time. I'm talking about famous lawyers. Thomas Mesero, who defended Michael Jackson and Robert Blake, is a very famous lawyer. He studied in my class to become a much more impacting trial or defense lawyer. And I've worked with many, many people who are not actors over the years who have come to learn the process so that they could take it into their profession. Even though I teach acting and it's an acting class that they are in, they take the work and they use it in their particular focus and in in their particular profession. So I've worked with doctors. The man who wrote the foreword to A Second Chance at Life, Ange Labieu, studied with me for five years, studied acting with me for five years. He's an MD psychiatrist, and he has a list of accomplishments 
Arm Long. He's got so many letters after his name. It takes you ten minutes to find out uh, all of his <laughs> all all of his background and all of his you know his accomplishments. And he studied with me for five years. And I've had other doctors, therapists, psychologists who have worked with me over the years and are using my work in their practice. I have somebody right now in Colorado who studied with me, Dr. Uh, Jim Nelson, who works with people particularly in the area of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And he worked with me for six or seven years, and I'm in communication with him. And I have a section in my book, this latest book, Second Chance at Life, that deals with how to deal with PTSD, and he's using it. He's using it. <laughs> I should say that doctors and lawyers were not in my list <laughs> of wanting to study acting and how I never saw the connection. Well, let me tell you that I had Tom Mesero doing jumping through hoops, doing confrontations, doing antisocial work, imaginary monologues with people to where he developed his own confidence in being able to examine and cross-examine and stand up in court with the power that he has. He's a wonderful lawyer. He's world famous, you know? And so I really believe this work can work for everybody, everybody, Absolutely. you know? <laughs> that is so funny. And I think there's a lot more other industries that can use what you are teaching and incorporate that into their life and they'll be <laughs> functioning at a at a much different level to everybody else in the market. As I say, all of the things that I can recall of the people who've been in my classes who have, even those people who have given up acting because they discovered something else while they were in training that was more important to them than acting, I think of those people as successes. That's a success. If you come to a place where your insights and your feelings and your awareness and your consciousness takes a different tack, takes a different channel, and you say acting is not really what I want, I want something else. I consider that a great success. Eric, throughout your career, what would you say is the best advice you have got? From, oh God, so many people, but the best advice I've gotten. Off the top of your head. Off the top of my head. Never quit, never give up. Never look for the exit sign. And that's been with me all my life. Never quit, never give up. No matter what the obstacles are, you find a way to climb over them or go around them or underneath. That's always been with me. I've never given up. I remember when I had three or four people in class when I first started the first year. You know, I'd go in and I had three or four people, then two people would drop out. I had two, then I had three, then I had five, then I had four, then I had one. I never gave up. I was always just putting one foot in front of the other and staying with it. I guess, you know, the word that comes up for me is love. My psychiatrist just wrote a book, gave to me and signed it to me called The Loving Self. And I think that when you fall in love with a person, with an idea, with a profession, with a book, with a piece of material, with a journey, with a path. I think love is the strongest and most powerful impetus that we can get behind us. 
love. It impels us to do what we do. You know, it impels me to do what I do. Well, what happened during the times that you were saying that when you first started, there were two, three, five, went down to four, and then maybe one. How did you come through it without asking the question, oh, is there something wrong with me? Maybe I'm not good for acting, or maybe I'm not good to be teaching acting. Well, that, that actually never occurred to me, because I had an inspiration, and I had a feeling, and I had a goal, and I had a process, the beginnings of a process that I was using to a deal with uh, where an actor was emotionally. I always said that, spent my whole life looking for the word how. In training, in early training, in college, in university, and I would ask a teacher, well, how do you do that? A director would say, blah, 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 blah. Eric, you got to do this, got to do it. Well, how do you do that? Nobody could give me an answer. They said, well, you, you, you've experienced that. You recall it. You remember it. You go back to it. None of those statements are really practically pragmatic ways of doing something how when i got into marty landau's class that was the first steps of how i discovered i always say i got a b c d e i had five letters of the alphabet so to speak in metaphor terms that i could spell words with i would say that what has impelled my entire life was discovering and promoting the how if you know what to do and you know how to do it, you can. And if you don't know what to do and you don't know how to do it, you can't do it. So how has been the most powerful three-letter word in my life. When an actor gets up on stage and does the scene, I say, okay, what did you do and how did you do it? How did you do it? What did you work for? How did you approach it? How, 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 how? That word has impelled my entire life. Well, what would you say is the worst advice you have been given? Boy, that's a tough one. You should be more commercial. You should teach uh, auditioning. You should do things that appeal to actors for getting jobs. And you should find ways to make more money. <laughs> I've always, 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 always rejected that. Because, you know, it comes in direct opposition to the commitment we make to the creative process. You know, I'm not a talent agent. I'm not in a profession where I'm responsible for supplying auditions for actors or or anything. Uh, actor has to audition to get the job, but I teach them the process of how to audition by being a craftsperson and being free to act. So I do that job. But yeah, people have opinions and they say, you know, you should market yourself. You should franchise yourself. No acting, please. You should franchise that. You should franchise that all over the country. You should have people starting classes under the guise of no acting, please. The Eric Morris system, and you should franchise that and be remunerated. Everybody who teaches my work around the world, I don't get a dime. And I don't ask for it. And I want it. I just want to disseminate the work. I mean, I'm not St. Francis. Listen, I'm not trying to make myself sound like St. Francis, you know, or whatever. But I want the work disseminated, and these people can make a living teaching this system, but I'm not going to franchise it to where they have to pay me because they're using things I've invented or innovated or whatever. I don't believe in that. So the worst advice I ever got was to commercialize, to make more money, 
to franchise, to do that garbage. I'm not interested in that. I'm just not interested in that. Well, if you could go back to the beginning of your journey, what would you change about how you did things? Ah, it's a hard question to answer. In my early years of teaching, I was a holy terror. I would scream at actors and not negatively, but I would get them to what I wanted them to do. And I developed a reputation to be, oh, he's pretty intense. You know, you got you to <laughs> be right on it with this guy. But, you know, over the years, I've mellowed. And I think that in my early years of teaching, a lot of that emotional life that I was spewing out came from my own insecurities. And as I got more comfortable and more secure and more evolved, those insecurities evaporated. And so I became more loving, more nourishing, more mellow more loving. So I think I can't go back and change that. But I would say that that wasn't necessarily a liability. But I know that it was different from how I've been teaching for the last 40 years, you know, that's a deep one. Yeah, it is a big one. It is a big one. (laughs) And, you know, another thing that I am not ashamed to do, or say is I don't know. Sometimes something comes up when an actor is on stage and they'll ask me a question about, not about the craft and not about the exercises, but questions about their psychological state or questions of how they could deal with a certain thing or the answer to a certain question. At the moment, I don't have the answer. I very liberally say, I don't know. I don't know. I'm going to do my best to find out because I think it's important to look into it and pursue the journey of discovery in that area. But I don't know. Right now, I don't know. So I think it's important for a person to be able to say that and really embrace it, not feel inadequate because you don't know the answer to a certain question or a certain issue. Well, you have had uh, over uh, six decades of being an actor as well as acting. So having been through that journey, what would you say is the number one thing you've learned about yourself? Be honest, be open, and to be able to recognize my shortcomings, my insecurities, my reality. I'm in therapy every Friday at 11 o'clock with a 95-year-old psychiatrist. I'm still working on dealing with my stuff. And that process will go on forever, as long as I go on. The evolution, the change, the dealing with, acknowledging fears, insecurities, confusion. Confusion is a big one sometimes. You get confused about certain things. But pretty much because of my own work on myself, I've been able to identify issues that I can deal with personally by myself. That doesn't mean I don't need help because I'm in therapy every week. But sometimes I can really come up with the answer because I have the gift of the knowledge of the work that I can use on myself. And I do. I use this work on myself daily, weekly, monthly, yearly. It's not just theoretical or conceptual. gives me a nice segue into your new book. So if we talk a little bit about it, because you did talk about it a little before, what made you want to pursue this topic of mental health in this book? Well, you know, I've been aware of that 
this process, this instrumental emphasis of my work. It works for everybody. Actors are people. My focus has been acting, but when I see the impact that it, when I have seen over the years, the impact that this work, these techniques, these approaches, the liberation of the actor and the person and how it really changes their lives on a meaningful level, I felt that I should put out a book that is aimed at all people, everybody, not just actors, because this work works for everybody. You might say it's a psychological technique. You might say it's a technique for changing one's relationship to the world that they live in. I felt that it was time to do this. As a matter of fact, I have a producer friend of mine, a big producer. His name is Scott Steindorf. He studied with me, too. We were having lunch on the Sunset Strip about five years ago. And he said, you know, Eric, you have to write a book for all people. This work is, you know, people won't pick it up. The average person won't pick up a book that has acting in the title. They're not actors, so they just go right by. But this work works for me. It works for other people. You have to write a book for everybody. That was the impetus. And so I said, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But I did, you know. Pretty soon I thought, well, maybe. Maybe I should. So I started working on it. This book, a little over three and a half years ago. And so I finished it a few months ago, maybe six or seven months ago. It came out two months ago. And I really feel that it's for everybody. And I think that it is life-changing, it is life-altering. How do I know that? Because it's changed my life. It has helped me in so many ways that I can't even count them. And I've worked with people with it over the years. And I see the incredible life-changing impact on their behavior and their level of happiness and on their level of positivity and on their relational abilities and their relationships. And so I see the proof of it, the three-dimensional proof of it, when I see a person who started with me a, a year or two ago get up on stage and be a different human being, altered in such a way that almost unrecognizable. I think that was really the motivation that drove me to doing all this, you know? So my latest book, A Second Chance at Life, really for not only for actors but for everybody and is dedicated to repairing the damage that we experience growing up in our lives damage that haunts us from an unconscious source it liberates itself into our consciousness and it haunts us and gets in the way of our freedom our happiness and our mental health so this technique is done by going back and identifying damaging experiences that you've had in your life. And then actually there's several approaches to doing that. There's the verbal approach, there's the sensory approach, there's the imaging approach. But the verbal approach is what you do is you take an experience that you've had that was very damaging and is relegated to the unconscious and it's still there in some memory bank of the unconscious and you change the ingredients of the experience to a positive group of elements and the outcome. You change the ingredients of the experience and the outcome to a positive instead of a negative experience. And you repeat that and repeat that and repeat that how many times? 20 times, 30 times, 50 times, 100 times. And each time you do that, 
you add elements to it. And the whole purpose for that is to actually affect the unconscious and reprogram the unconscious memory banks. You're actually replacing a good experience in relation to a bad experience. You're replacing it with a good, solid, happy experience. And by doing that repetitiously, you actually reprogram the unconscious. I know that sounds a little wooji-wooji, but according to C.G. Jung, who probably knew more about the unconscious than any psychiatrist or psychologist in the history of the world, said that the unconscious does not evaluate, it doesn't analyze, and it doesn't have opinions. It only stores everything we experience. So by reprogramming the unconscious and repairing that damage, those damaging experiences, you liberate yourself from the haunting liberation of those damaging experiences into your life. And you can live much more happily and much more fully and much more healthy, you know. There are other techniques also. I have a thing I called in the book, retrospective objectivity which is another technique for dealing with your self-image. Everybody has a self-image. The image is created and formulated and put together over a period of a lifetime. And we get comfortable believing that our self-image is who we are. A person, for example, might say to you, you know, you're very stubborn. You know, hypothetically, you're very stubborn. And you might answer, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I am stubborn. That's, yeah, that's who I am. Yeah, I am stubborn. I know that. And so we get very comfortable embracing this self-image that we have of ourselves. But it might be a false self-image. It might be an incomplete self-image. And it might be a false self that we've been living with for decades. So in retrospective objectivity, I ask and I work with people and I ask them, and I use this work on myself. This is not just theoretical or conceptual or intellectual. I've been doing this work with myself for the last 30 years. So actually what you do is you identify your self-image as you know it, and then you objectify it. You go into where you are in your life, what you've done, what you've accomplished, how you see the world what your consciousness level is, what other people have brought into your life, and all of the stuff does not compute with the self-image you've been living with. It makes it much more complete. It gives you a better objective view of the true image of who you are, the true self-image. So it's called retrospective objectivity, and that's another technique that I use for helping people to elevate and complete and create a much healthier self-image and a much more authentic self-image. And it works because I've used it on people. I've used it on myself. And it, it's life-changing. Now, the other technique is second chance encounters. Now, everybody has people, thoughts, experiences that I wish, oh, I wish I would have said this to that person. They're no longer here. I wish I'd told them I love them. Or I wish I stood up for that person and taken my due, not letting them get away with what they did to me. And these images also, these things that we find incomplete with no closure, I wish I had done this. Where was I? What was I thinking? Is a way to go back and revisit them by doing second chance encounters. Like, for example, somebody that you 
who are very grateful to, somebody who helped you in your life, and you never gave them the kind of love or appreciation that when they were alive. Like I had a teacher, his name was Rakin Ben-Ari. He was a Russian. He's one of my early teachers as an actor. He was so supportive of me. He was so encouraging of me. He was always there for me. And you know, I never told him how much he meant to me. I never told him how much I appreciated him. I never told him how much I loved him. So in a second chance encounter, which is in my book, I go back and I tell him, how much he meant to me and how important he was in my evolution as an actor and as a person and that I loved him and I miss him and I wish I had told you this because you were so important to my life and so it's a second chance encounter and I did that with my father too and you can do it with ex-people in your life, people who are still alive, who you are not in contact with, that you really have not really told them or stood up for yourself or let them know how you felt. It's called second chance encounters. And then I have a section where I deal with subpersonalities, which is a tremendous system of work. There's many books written on it. It's uh, we are all comprised of many subparts and we get into a place where certain elements and energies in our personality called subpersonalities begin to take over our life and they begin to be in the driver's seat of our life and they start running our life and ruining our life. So I have techniques for doing voice dialogue and ways of dealing with identifying those subparts that are in the driver's seat and won't relinquish their control in our lives. And I have techniques that move them out there and are replaced by other subpersonalities that are maybe less destructive or less controlling or less dictatorial. So I have a lot of techniques in this new book, A Second Chance at Life. And I have two psychiatrists. One wrote the um, forward. The other one wrote an endorsement. And I have three or four PhD psychologists who've read the book and are very high on it and are very supportive of it. Several of them said they were going to incorporate this work in their work. So I'm very pleased with the psychological community's response. And I've talked to a lot of therapists. I'm in therapy myself with a 95-year-old psychiatrist who's known all over the world. And he gave me the first endorsement. He said, we do the same work different terminology. I'm sure our folks are going to love the book. The name, it's Eric's ninth book, which is A Second Chance at Life. Eric, other than the impact that the book is going to make on everybody else on this planet who are not just actors, what are you looking forward to? About the book? or just Anything else, life? just in life? I'm looking forward to living 12 and a half more years. <laughs> I mean, it sounds funny, but in 12 and a half years, I'll be 100. So what am I looking forward to? I'm looking forward to those 12 and a half years of productive life, doing what I'm doing and never stopping. I'm never going to retire. You know how you spell retire? D-E-H-T-H. D-E-A-T-H. That's how you spell retirement. Yeah. <laughs> so what am I looking forward to? 12 and a half more years of productivity. <laughs> Well, Eric, I love having you on the show. You shared a lot of things I'm sure our audience is going to go crazy over. Thank you so much for being here. Now, for people who want to find out more about you, your work, whether they're an actor or not, how do they do that? EricMorris.com. It's my website. It tells you everything. List all my books, all the classes, everything I do. 
ericmorris.com. <laughs> thank you so much for being in the show. Well, thank you. You're brilliant. Well, there you go. That is our episode for today. I hope you enjoy that. I don't know about you, but I am super curious to be taking a few acting classes to see what extra level that is going to give to whatever else I do. As always, go check out the show notes, all the summary and every link and every resource that Eric shared is all in there. So you can always go and access it. And until I see you next time, keep at it in your extraordinary journey.